It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Welcome back, everyone, to the 28th episode of the Take to Points podcast, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm your co-host, Tate Seth. Joined, as always, by Arjun Menon, coming off a great weekend of football. Arjun, how are we feeling? Yeah, we're doing very well. This was, yeah, like you said, one of the most exciting weeks of football, if not the most exciting um, potential game of the week or game of the year candidate with Vikings Bills, as we'll talk about. But overall, pretty good weekend for football in terms of, uh, you know, our two quarterbacks that we root for the hardest wasn't the greatest week of football. And uh, I, I do want to touch on like that kind of aspect later in the episode, but we yeah, excited to excited to talk shop with you. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, we have some really fun games to review today, like you said. And you know, as we continue to get further into the season, I feel less confident about like my reads of basically every team, except for like the Chiefs being good and the Texans being bad. Like I know those will kind of be the two givens every week. But other than that, like literally any team could be any team right now, which I think is wild. And so, you know, we have to start with a game that was pretty big for the NFC playoff picture as a whole with the Buccaneers and the Seahawks. What were some of your takeaways from this game in Germany? Yeah, I think number one, like it was a, it was a pretty good offensive showing for the Bucks offense. That was, you know, we, we've kind of talked about how the Bucks offense, like it's, it's been like a little bit broken, but the pieces were still there and the infrastructure was still there to succeed. I mean, I know Byron Leftwich calling plays is like different than like having Byron Leftwich and Bruce Arians on the staff, but it was for for left which was mainly the first down, first and 10 runs and the or just the early down runs in general which had not been working at all for the bucks um but in this game i think we kind of saw uh, a little bit of a shift first of all the bucks were able to run the ball um in general averaged a 0.02 epa per rush 37% success rate which were all like much higher than what they were last week but I think the biggest thing was it seemed like Tom Brady was more willing to kind of go through his progressions. And this was his best game of the year, you know, 0.53 EPA per play, um, his best uh, PFF passing grade. And he also had a time to throw of 2.57, which was his highest it's been all year. And something you kind of talked about last episode was um, it seemed like Brady wasn't willing to go through his progressions and he was getting a little trigger happy or very early in the pocket. And I think today or not today, but uh, Sunday, we kind of saw um, him like hold on to the ball a little bit more and find some guys open down the field. So pretty impressed by the Bucks' offense. And, you know, hopefully it's a, it's a sign of good things to come going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's that's exactly it is, you know, it was a combination of the Bucks not being able to run the ball and kind of using the wrong running back, right? Like, you know, the analytics community likes to say running backs don't matter. But really what the reality is, is the top 5 to 10% and the bottom 5 to 10% do matter. It's like the middle yeah. 80% that don't matter. So going from Fournette, who was literally in the bottom 5 to 10% of running backs in the NFL, to Rashad White, who is probably going to be an average running back, could kind of spur their running game. So that got fixed. You know, the Brady stuff, you know, holding onto the ball long and going through his productions, uh, running 10 play actions that went for 13 yards per attempt was crucial for fixing, you know, kind of like their deep field explosive passing attack because they have Mike Evans and Chris Godwin, you know, 
you want to use them when you can. And then we know like late down performance is unstable. Coming into this game, the Bucks ranked 28th in EPA per play on late downs. In this game, they had a plus 0.9 EPA per play on late downs, you know, which obviously would be first in the league on a one game week. But it was a really, really good late down performance. And, you know, these things kind of continue throughout the season. This is where I, I see the Bucks often start to become really scary. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, I don't know. It's it also feels like the Seahawks like kind of had their letdown game on defense. It did seem like they were overperforming a little bit based on like their personnel and the and the talent they had on that side of the ball. Um, you know, the, the Bucks offense was was always pretty good on paper and the Seahawks defense was never really good on paper. So uh, this was kind of the week where um, you know, especially if you were betting this game as we as we give out Seahawks plus three, but uh, if you're betting this game, you were kind of either buying the Seahawks super high and the Bucks really low. And I think, um, you know, the Bucks kind of rebounded in a big way, not only on offense, but on defense as well, where I thought they had, you know, one of their one of their better games of the year. And, and the Seahawks kind of didn't have a great game at all, especially on the ground. Yeah, I, I do agree with that. And, you know, I, I, I think like on the, you know, the Seahawks defense side of things like the pass rush just wasn't there, which allowed Brady's time to throw on the Seahawks offensive things. Again, it, it really came down to late downs. They had a 62% success rate on early downs, which is really, mm-hmm. really good. But the 27% success rate on late downs, you know, really kept them behind the chains. And like Gino's going to make big time throws every single week. You know, he had three big time throws charted by PFF. Uh, this game, you know, the, the touchdown pass to Goodwin was phenomenal. Like as, as good of a pass as, you know, you're, you're really going to see all season, but, you know, the, the fumble was, was pretty, was pretty rough, you know, in a, in a situation yeah. where the Seahawks were going to try to get back to it. And yeah, I, I, like you said, I think it was just kind of like a letdown across the board, um, you know, for both sides of the ball for the Seahawks in this game. I, I don't feel any necessarily like worse about them going forward because this is kind of how they were, you know, they still have a, a betting implied uh, probability of making the playoffs at 70%. So they're probably going to be in the playoffs and probably, you mm-hmm. know, going to have like a, a coin flip type game in the first round but you know not really have the ceiling of a team that can make it to the nfc championship yeah i i totally agree and i think your point that just perfectly encapsulated it like they're they're, they're probably a playoff team but whose ceiling is a little bit capped just because of the dearth of of uh talent that they have on the roster and we kind of saw that in this game against a, a pretty good bucks team even if they were a little bit banged up um but let's go on to a pretty good game one that i kept tabs on pretty much the entire one o'clock slate uh lions bears so i'm gonna let you kick this one off what were your main takeaways uh lions coming off now their second win in a row riding hot restoring the roar so what, what do you think Tish? this was you know the type of game where you start checking the wild card standings doing the math to figure out how the lions can get to the playoffs um but in uh, jokes aside you know Jared Goff was kind of like the story, you know, of this game for me, like everyone, you know, was, was really happy with the way Justin Fields performed and like, we'll get to him uh, in a little bit, but like Goff was like unconscious in this game. Uh, You know, he's struggled on the road uh, this entire season, his entire tenure with the lions. And this was a game where he squashed all of that narratives. Um, You know, he had 18 total EPA in this game and only a a five uh, air yard average on his throws. So basically, like the game plan was get the ball in Amon Ross St. Brown's hands, let him cook. Um, you yeah. know, just like 
he is so good at finding a soft spot, you know, uh, in the intermediate area of the field before the first down marker and turning up field and getting the first down marker. And then, you know, preseason legend Tom Kennedy comes through and golf seems to have a good connection with him. And so it was, it was the combination of those things. The pass production, especially in the first half, was phenomenal. Like this is kind of the offensive line that you were promised coming into the year. So when you start to add all those things up, like Lions ranked 12th in EPA per drop back on the entire season this year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if like they didn't have the worst defense, you know, in the entire league, like they've had, like this team could actually be pretty competitive, you know, out of the top 12 teams in EPA per drop back this year, only two are currently out of the playoffs right now, the Jaguars and the Lions. So we can see like, that's like usually a pretty good indicator of if you're going to make the playoffs or not. But like the 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 things are kind of there for the Lions to keep having this this high level passing attack, you know, it just needs to stay more consistent like it was this week. Yeah, I agree. I, I mean, it, it was weird because it was like Goff, like you said, the eight out of five point two. Um, but I mean, on third downs, it, it really felt like he was just nails. He was hitting like backside digs. That third and fifteen throw on the on the on the dig, which I believe it was on Monterey St. Brown, was was an absolute dot. Um, you know, lines in general, 1.28 EPA per play or EPA per pass on third and fourth down. I think Goff did a really good job in those like high leverage situations. Um, was a little bit surprised they didn't really have much success running the ball against the Bears front. Um, but you know, th- those things happen, and I think Goff stepped up. Um, I-, I am a little bit worried about this Lions defense. I mean, I've been worried the whole season, but like it just seems like they didn't really prepare for Justin Fields and his legs. I mean, the first drive of the game, Fields ran for 47 yards on on zone reads or, or QB uh, draws or QB powers. And now, I mean, we'll probably touch on it in our preview episode on Friday, but now they go against Daniel Jones and Saquon Barkley, possibly the best quarterback running back rushing duo in the NFL, right? So, like, there's some concerning things about the Lions defense. I, I think I'm a lot higher on the Lions offense now coming off this game, even if, you know, it, it was against the Bears defense, which isn't that good of a unit. but um, some encouraging signs for the offense, some not so encouraging signs for the defense. Yeah, I, I do think again, like only the only encouraging sign for the Lions defense from this game was Jeff Okuda. Uh, the <laughs> you know the pick six was was absolutely game changing. He didn't allow a single catch uh, on on the game, uh, which which was awesome. But yeah, the inability to just tackle, I think, is like really just what hurts this Lions defense. You know, there were so many times in this game where they got a pressure that they weren't able to turn into a sack, you know, especially the last drive. And like Justin Fields, you know, I get is like the most dynamic quarterback in the league right now. But this has been an issue that's pertained with them like the entire season. And so, you know, it's 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 something that I think, you know, kind of falls on the defensive coaching staff where like these players need to use their their arm length and their ability to tackle at a higher level. But mm-hmm. what I want to, what I want to hear from you is how are we feeling about Justin Fields now? We've seen, you know, four weeks of kind of this in a row and like, where are we, where are we kind of seeing with, with his high level play? I mean, he's ranked ninth in the EPA for play since week yeah. seven. So, I mean, so what do you feel about him? It's MVP right here. <laughs> you know, no, but on, in all serious, like, I think we're finally seeing that like the, the, fat right tail of justin fields the upside he has and look he's not he's not first of all he's not winning games like period which i i don't really factor into my evaluation he's not he's not producing like a normal quarterback right like a a large part of his 
efficiency as production over the past three weeks over the course of the season has come on the ground. And I mean, I don't think that's anything to kind of like hate on him about like this. That's nothing that we should be saying like, oh, like he's not a great quarterback. He's not a good quarterback because he doesn't pass like like are we seeing who he's throwing the ball to? I know they traded for Claypool. He still has to adjust to this offense. Mooney's again, at best a wide receiver too. He has one of the worst offensive lines in the NFL. Like he, it's not like he has any time to throw or go through his progressions. I'm, I'm just happy and excited to see him kind of like take advantage of his freakishly athletic skill set. And I think that's something that the bears should be leaning on for the rest of the year. Obviously, I think at some point in the year, if you're the Bears, like you should be able to figure out that you know you can use Fields' legs whenever you want to. Now you need to test his ceiling or his uh, range of distributions as a passer. But overall, he's he's put together and strung together some really good performances. Uh, you know, in general as a passer and as a runner. And again, it's it is versus the Lions defense, so we do need to grade him on a curve there. But you you look at the sum of the plays he made off script, out of the pocket, breaking tackles. Um, breaking tackles from edge rushers and still throwing the ball, not just like looking to run. And I think we're seeing, you know, that kind of upside that everyone in the draft was looking at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think that's exactly it. Um, you know, the only thing I think I'll I'll push back on is he's he's a phenomenal rusher right now. I think you know he's a top three rushing quarterback in the NFL. I mean, his 555 rushing yard in the past five week leads the entire NFL, right? So like. You know, what he's doing on the ground is amazing. He had 43 rushing yards over expected in this game in particular uh, on design rushes. But he's, these, even when he's been on his hot streak these past couple of weeks, he still has negative 11.7 total EPA as a passer. You know, if you want to take out the pick six, which was negative seven, that's still negative four EPA as a passer. And, you know, he has a 0% completion percentage over expected. So I do think he's still an average to below average passer. Right now, I, I, you know, I wasn't that impressed with his passing ability in the game against the Lions. And I do understand mm-hmm. the angle about his receivers not being well, but like any types of receivers have been able to get open against the Lions corners, not named Akuda this year. So you would expect him to be better as a passer. You know, the pick six is something that happens to young quarterbacks. Like I'm not going to hold that against them too much because that's just a, a fluky play. But like the, the sum of the passes, I don't think has been there for him, which is why, you know, I, I do think the Bears went out and tried to make the Claypool trade and the Nikhil Harry trade and take v- Velus Jones, like none of them contributed mm-hmm. on Sunday. But it's still like something that I want him to, you know, get better at. And like the really good news for, for Bears fans, I think, is it's a lot easier to improve as a passer than it is as a rusher. So, you know, you have yeah. the rushing down. Like that's something that's more talent based. The passing is something that you can work at over time. And he clearly has the arm. To be a good passer, it you know really just comes down to the accuracy, uh, where where I need to see it from him before I fully commit to him long term. Yeah, I, I agree, and I think from a macro perspective, like these games are kind of how you want, or as a Bears fan, and as you know, if you're working for the Bears, like it's kind of how you want them to play out. You want to see how Fields is. You want to see the depths he can take this offense, like how high and how what the ceiling is with Fields in this offense. But you know, you're still losing games to where you'll have a high enough draft pick, but you're not losing him in, in like a demoralizing way. You're losing them by, you know, either winning him up to the, up to the end or, or being, or staying close with pretty good teams. So, um, you know, I think in the long term, bears have a pretty bright future with fields. Like I, I'm not 
fully bought in, but I'm like 90% there. If he can just take a a couple steps forward with his accuracy, with his decision-making at times, instead of just looking to run or making plays off happen off script, um, I think the the Bears should be set for the coming future. I Yeah, I know. I, I definitely agree. And like the Bears like have keep, you know, keep putting up a ton of points on offense. You know, you trade away your pieces on defense because you're kind of getting, you know, giving up on the season, which is the right thing to do. And now, you know, right now, if the season ends today, they have the sixth overall pick. You draft your bona fide number one receiver there. And knowing what we've seen from rookie wide receivers lately and how quickly they've gotten acclimated to the league, that can become a really, really good offense. Next year, Fields is Mm -hmm. able to take the next step as a passer. Everyone else slides down a spot and you insert this wide receiver one that you take in the draft. So I think it could be really cool. Uh, and, and you know this was this was a fun game. You know, I think I think things are you know both looking up for the Lions and the Bears in the NFC North. But getting to you know the the real leaders of the NFC North, uh, you know, who, who basically wrapped it up after this game, Vikings Bills. Um, you know, I I think game of the year. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. from when you take the sum of the win probability that happened in the fourth quarter, which is like a good way to evaluate how exciting a game is. This was the second most exciting game of the year behind Panthers Falcons from week eight, which, you know, was, was very um, skewed with the, the hail Mary by, by PJ yeah. Walker, but still like this, this game was awesome. What were some of your, your takeaways from it? I think, you know, a lot of people are, are kind of going to overreact to the bills losing here. I don't know. It was, it was just a funky game. Like the bills, Every week, or this even goes back to last year, and these like one score games, they just happen to shoot themselves in the foot. They just happen to find a way to lose these close games. And it's not really an indictment on like Josh Allen or the coaching staff. I think like you look at how the Vikings won, it, it took an 81 yard run by Dalvin Cook, you know, someone who I wouldn't necessarily say is one of the more explosive backs in the NFL. I think you and Eric Eager's like uh, adjusted 40 times showed him getting a little bit slower, if I'm not mistaken, mm-hmm. from the past yep. couple of years. Yeah. So it took an explosive run by a running back getting like less speedy over the over the last couple of years and possibly the greatest catch of the century for the Bills to lose this game. I think, you know, Kirk Cousins, I think statistically he had a decent game. Uh, his, PFF, uh, his PFF grade isn't that good. He had four turnover worthy plays, two pretty bad interceptions. But as he'd done all year, it just seems like in the clutch, he finds a way to get it done. Captain Kirk brings the ship home and against a, a pretty good bills defense you know it's it's tough to say the vikings are just like completely fraudulent even if you know their point differential or or whatever metric you want to use uh kind of says that they are but the fact that they, they keep they keep winning these close games i think signals to me there's something more at hand and you know you got to give props where it's due because you know beating the best team on the road as seven or six and a half point underdogs is a pretty impressive feat hmm. yeah you, you mentioned the Dalvin Cook run, and I kind of want to go through, like, the sequence of events that, like, had to happen for this game to, like, unfold from, like, a win probability perspective, right? Because, like, after the Dalvin Cook run, you know, two minutes to go, uh, but, you know, Vikings get the ball back down uh, four, and, you know, they, they have a 12.5% win probability at the two-minute warning, which is the fourth, of 18, fourth and 18. The catch of the year, you know, possibly of the decade, uh, happens with Justin Jefferson basically, like, having to intercept a pass that was like going straight at the Bills defender uh, who, mm-hmm. did, who did knock it down. You know, he was going for the interception. Justin Jefferson puts his arm up, grabs it down. So with, with as the Vikings continue to go down the field, 50 seconds to go from fourth and goal at the one, the Vikings have a 50% win probability. 
Kirk Cousins, you know, attempts like this like lazy quarterback sneak <laughs> where he doesn't like churn his like legs. He kind of just like tries to like lead forward and get stopped. Um, so now, you know, the Bills have a 93% win probability, like, you know, very, very small percent chance that, that something could happen, but it could happen. Allen, you know, knocks the ball into his center's leg. And not only is it a safety, it gets recovered for uh, the, the, the Vikings touchdown. So they, the Vikings go up three now. Bills now have a 15% win probability. Uh, you know, we were texting during this game, and this is where you took, you know, the Bills uh, live live line of plus 450 because they, they had such a low probability. They drive down the field, they kick the field mm-hmm. goal. And then, you know, can you take us through when you hedged on that bet to get plus money on the Vikings as, as we were going into overtime? Yeah, so, I mean, the logic here was, I mean, I believed in Josh Allen, and we, we talked about it on our previous show, Ed Donatel, lightest boxes of any uh, defense in the league on early down. So my, you know, thesis was they're going to be playing a, a lot of like light boxes, soft coverage. So Allen was going to be able to take whatever he wanted at the very minimum. I thought they were going to go to overtime. I thought they had a, go- a chance to go win the game. That's how much I believed in Allen. And then once we got to overtime, I mean, you know, just, just to make sure I profited, I took some Vikings money line at plus plus one fifty. So I, I mean, I had plus money on both sides. So I kind of just enjoyed the game after obviously rooting for my bills bet to hit. But um, I just, again, going back to that thesis of like Kirk is just finding ways to win. Like not even Kirk, the Vikings are just finding ways to win these close games. We on the PFF forecast, George Shaheri gave a pretty good answer to my a question I had. Like we, we've kind of talked about, you know, you, me, Eric Eager, George, like Timo, like we've all talked about how one score games like eventually regresses back to the mean um, year, like season over season. Right. But within a season, one score wins like it, it pretty much stays pretty sticky. I think like a team that's good in one score games, like in the first half of the year will probably be good in, in one score games, like at the end of the year. Right. So like these kind of, that kind of hypothesis, like kind of led me to bet the Vikings there. And, you know, again, Vikings are now what eight and one or seven and one in one score games yeah seven and one in one score game yeah so i don't know what they're gonna finish First, like seven and oh in one score games because their last was a blowout yeah to the eagles yeah yeah so i i don't know how sticky this is going to be for the rest of the year but it, it is pretty impressive that uh you know the vikings are able to kind of like pull these games out week over week and especially in these like high leverage clutch situations it it is actually yeah and and you know it's kind of like a matchup of a team that's always been winning these one score games with the Vikings and a team that's been losing a lot of these with the Bills and like you know I'm not going to overreact to the Bills losing I still think you know they're the most complete roster in the NFL with an alien quarterback so you know when you have the combination of that I think you'll be fine it, it kind of feels like the Rams slump that they had last year that we all freaked out about including myself uh, before they turned mm-hmm. around to to get to the Super Bowl there. Uh, but if I were to overreact, I'm starting to question, you know, as the sample keeps increasing, this is multiple years in a row now that this is happening to the Bills, where they keep losing these one-score games, and it's not like, you know, it's it's a uh, a field goal that goes off the crossbar or, you know, an a, a interception that gets tipped straight up in the air that is caught by a defender. Like, you know, there were some really fluky plays in this game for the Vikings to win this game, but I'm just talking about the Bills as a whole. Did Allen's, you know, kind of like decision making get a little foggy as we get late into these games? Because that interception he threw at the end of the game, the Bills were just driving down the field, taking their, you know, five to 10 yard gains. 
there was no reason to force that ball into the end zone. And I don't know what Allen was seeing because the receiver he was throwing to was tightly covered. So, you know, I, I think all the way back to the playoff game against the Texans in Allen's uh, second year in the NFL, where in overtime he tried to lateral it backwards and almost, you know, looked like one of the, the novices in the NFL. Like, it, I don't know if that's something that kind of just, just stays with them throughout their their team. Like, if, if it's just kind of a part yeah. of it, like that, that would be like what I would think if I would overreact to it. But, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I mean, you pretty much echoed my thoughts about like the what I was saying about Kirk and the Vikings this year, like how they were just able to pull out these one score games, like the Bills just find ways to lose. And it's not, it's like, it's not like they lose in these like really weird ways. They just lose because their alien quarterback just makes dumb mistakes or their defense, which is elite pretty much every other game of the season or over seasons just can't find a way to get a stop. So I don't think we should overreact too much to the Bills. Their offense is mostly fine. I, I don't really know the status of Josh Allen's injury. Um, I I I think going forward, um, they should probably run the ball a little bit more and utilize yeah. Allen's legs a little bit more than they have in the past. Like in that um in to, to open overtime, they ran it twice with Allen for like 38 yards. Like I think teams are going to r- give them a lot of light boxes because they're scared of their passing defense. And I think Bills have the, you know, have the guy in Allen who's, in my opinion, RB1 on their team <laughs> to yeah. uh, take advantage of those light boxes. For sure. And, you know, there were times yesterday where the Vikings gave them light boxes that they weren't able to run with their running backs. So that's like an issue that that really needs to be figured out. You know, I think I saw out of their last 24 plays of the game, they only ran twice. Uh, you know, that was with a lead for for most of it. Yeah. So like that's that's yeah. something, you know, that like, you know, we advocate for passing it. It's been very successful for them. It's very successful for the Chiefs when you have a great quarterback to pass, you know, more often than you run. But you do need to mix that in to keep defenses honest. Like, I, I do think that is a thing there. Yeah, and sorry, the last thing about I because I actually made a graph on this. The the Bills on first and ten have the lowest rush rate of any team in the NFL by about like four percent, but they have the third highest success rate running the ball um on on first and ten. So it's just like a weird um you know thing they have going on where like they just don't run the ball, but it's also like they don't really have uh receipt like they don't have running backs. I think they trust and um, I think that's kind of a little bit of, of a point of concern, but I, I trust uh, Ken Dorsey, uh, Sean McDermott and co to kind of figure it out by the season's end. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, I think like that's why like, you know, like they, the bills have their, their Stefan digs. So like it can, they can overcome a lot of their struggles too. Like with the, the Vikings ran the ball, you know, well in this, this game against the bills, but when you have Justin Jefferson, it can cover up for almost every problem you have on your your offense right like next gen stats put this out justin jefferson was responsible for nine receptions on sunday with a sub 50 percent completion probability the most in any of any game in the next gen stats era no player has even more than six so nine of the ten passes with a less than 50 percent completion probability that was thrown to Justin jefferson he caught and like Mm -hmm. we can see the the evolution of kirk cousins with kevin o'connell here was Kirk has, you know, typically been a more conservative quarterback, especially on third down where he takes the check down more than he should. But if he just starts throwing these 50-50 balls up to Justin Jefferson with Jefferson, it's, you know, 75-25. 
this could really change how the Vikings offense is going forward. You sprinkle in Hawkinson, you know, getting all the intermediate targets that was really missing uh, when, when they had Irv Smith there. And now I can start to buy into the Vikings offense going forward. Yep. Yep. Agreed. All right, let's move on to a, a pretty good game. Cowboys Packers one that I, I'm, I'm a, look, I'm very tilted about this game because we gave out Cowboys minus four and a half. I loved this bet. Um, I I was confused why it moved towards the Cowboys by the start of the game. It was like minus three and a half. The Cowboys at one point in the fourth quarter up 20 to 14. I was feeling really good because, you know, this isn't the Cowboys defense of late or of past where they kind of just like let teams come back in games. They're, they're not running a Gus Bradley cover three scheme, which allows teams to come back late in games. But somehow they let this Aaron Rodgers offense, which had been dormant for weeks now, to kind of crash the party and and ruin not only the four and a half they lost outright and it, it was there were some just slightly concerning things i had about this cowboys team number one Dak prescott right like i i don't think he had his best game three for three touchdowns but also two interceptions one might not have been his fault but another one a pretty bad interception and i think like i think it's we have to question like i'll, I'll ask you like do you think Dak? is really that type of quarterback where he can outplay a 45, 46, $47 million contract that he got. That, yeah, that's a great question. And, you know, I think like the thing with Dak is he's great when he's, when he's really on and everything is kind of flowing with him, but his, his, his lows happen too often. Like I, I don't think his lows are that low, um, you know, Mm -hmm. like some other quarterbacks that have like a wider range of outcomes. But it's just like it's more of closer to somewhat of a a uniform distribution that he has than a normal distribution when you look at his his range of outcomes. And, you know, it just it just happens too often in these in these types of situations where you can't throw these interceptions. Fredak Prescott, you he makes some great throws throughout the game. Um, you know, especially when he's on the move or you know, throws to Lamb, I thought were phenomenal. But if you would you have Gallup who isn't fully back and you know you're you're you don't have Zeke in to pass block and I you know I think he's still the best pass blocking running back in the NFL when these things start to compound it becomes like a thing for Dak a, a lot for him to to overcome I I don't think that's why he is probably not in like the the tier one or the the top like seven or eight quarterbacks in the NFL he's just on the outside looking out because these like areas of low play just happen too often for him if they add you know obj or there's another receiver like a brandon cooks who gets caught from the texans mm. or something that they're able to plug into this offense then i think they'll be fine because they just need that extra juice from a, a backside receiver to, to help lamb while Gallup works his way back but until they get that i think a lot falls on Dak, and he 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 will step up to the plate most of the time but there's a lot of swings and misses that happen with him too yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. Um, and like, I again, I've been vocal about kind of being lower on Dak than most. And I think it, it kind of showed in this game. But um, I think going forward, Cowboys should be fine. And and La- C.D. Lamb had a great game. And Tony Pollard kind, kind of just continuing to show. He, he might be one of the few running backs that might not see a huge drop off in efficiency when volume goes up. I did want to bring up a, a kind of a, a disturbing trend I noticed from this uh, you know, coming from this game and something I kind of kept track of before this game and kind of perpetuated the Cowboys run defense is like low key a problem right now. So we kind of talk about how 
like the, the Green Bay offense was kind of like fundamentally broken before this game. Um, I wouldn't, you know, necessarily say their like uh, rushing attack is like that broken. I was more like concerned about their passing attack because, um, you know, Green Bay is like an above average team running the ball per EPA per play. But against the against the Cowboys, the Packers average is 0.15 EPA per rush, 41% success rate. And like the big question mark I had about the Cowboys during the offseason was their interior defensive line. Like I think it was like Osa, Odigzua. Um like it, it was it was just a bunch of like not that great defense interior defense alignment. It's kind of been showing the last couple of games. Like I know that the Packers didn't really run the ball like a ton a ton, even though they had a pretty or they did run a ball run the ball a lot. I'm sorry, I got that wrong. But in like games past, it seems like the Cowboys run defense has been susceptible to like good rushing attacks. Like I know Chicago is a little bit of an outlier because they have fields, but Khalil Herbert, 6.2 yards per carry. Montgomery also got 50 rushing yards. Like Detroit also had a pretty good game because they kept it close. Uh, Jamal Williams, 5.3 yards per carry. Like they, they can get beat by good rushing offenses. And I think Green Bay took advantage of that. And we kind of saw a, a, a small weakness of this Dallas team in this game and something to keep watch of going forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's, that's actually a good point because, you know, when, when Dallas was playing other teams, especially, you know, these past couple of weeks with Dak coming back, they, they were going up and like their pass rush and coverage has been so good. You could stop teams on third down and, you know, pretty frequently to get ahead where you could kind of hide your, your rush defense. But when you're in a game where, the Packers have had a 90, uh, or sorry, a negative 30% pass rate over expected on early downs in this game. They were fully committed to running Aaron Jones. You know, Aaron Jones finally got the 22 rushes that I've been saying that he should get, you know, turn it into 5.5 total EPA. That's where the run defense really starts to become a problem where and the team will just commit to the run no matter what the game script is. And like you could you could really start to expose the Cowboys there. It is the interior defensive line, like you mentioned. And you know, with Anthony Barr getting injured in this game, I'm, you know, I, I don't know how they'll use Parsons now if he can, if he'll have to be on the defensive line less or if they'll take mm-hmm. just a, a pretty bad off ball linebacker uh, as, as their backup in David Clark, you know, who, who'll be a rookie in this game and, and kind of put him in there and just kind of bite the bullet in that position and then just keep Parsons on the defensive line where he can wreak the most havoc. So that'll probably be the biggest question for the the Cowboys defense going forward uh if, if how they'll be able to handle Parsons's new adjusted role with Barr getting injured yeah I agree and I think I think it's probably smarter to just take an off by linebacker and kind of bite the bullet and and probably go to more like dime packages where you move Jaron Curse into the box and make him like a dime linebacker or something or or yeah make him like a dime linebacker so you have like a bigger personnel on the field just because Parsons uh utility as an edge rusher is so much higher than him playing linebacker um the the other the last thing i kind of took away from this game was i don't know the packers offense is really a layups and threes offense there is no intermediate game i mean i know people are kind of like talking about christian Watkins from like a fantasy perspective like you look at his route share or his route target share or whatever it seemed like whenever he was getting the ball it was just aaron Rodgers chucking up a go ball to him and a lot of them came on third down where it was run run third and intermediate and then just go ball to Christian Watson, right? He had a pretty bad drop to start the game, but it did seem like his athleticism and his speed kind of rejuvenated this Packers offense. Um, I'm I'm curious to see, you know, what how the 
how the Packers kind of like reintegrate him into this offense or like keep integrating him when Romeo Dubs comes back. Um, but I think the layups and threes offense with a, a, with a heavy run dose is, is probably the Packers' best bet because they have no one to trust in the intermediate slot right now. So before this game, I thought it was a it was a free throws and mid range shots type of offense because the free throws were Aaron Rodgers led the league in throws behind the line of scrimmage, and so those weren't doing anything. So you replace those with the run game, which becomes a layup instead of like a free throw, right? Yeah. Like, and yeah. and I think that could like really get you going there, and then you could start taking your three pointers instead of your your mid range shots. There was like the mid range shots were going about the same length as the three pointers which is like what mid-range shots are basically and like what, you know, basketball analytics people say. But like the difference was in this game, since you were running the ball, since you were throwing to Christian Watson, instead it was a lot easier to, to make these plays. They provided a higher expected points uh, than, than you know, the, the shots that you were taking earlier in the season when players were double covered or when Rodgers wasn't stepping up in the pocket. So if the Packers continue down this path, you know, this, this iteration of their offense, you know, they, they could make some noise, but again, like they still have a pretty low probability to make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't see this, you know, continuing much of the future, you know, having to rely on a rookie to get you three touchdowns to win a game. Isn't something you want going forward, but maybe the, maybe the, you know, the Rogers LaFleur combination that struggled to start the year is slowly figuring it out this year. There's still some sideline beef brewing between the two. It seems <laughs> like, but uh, you know, we, we could start to see, you know, something something in the future develop, uh, you know, if if they kind of keep what they had going on Sunday. Yeah, agreed. Okay, last game, um, Chargers 49ers. So, look, it, it, I was pleasantly surprised by how the Chargers kind of fought in this game. Like, I, I was legitimately had no expectation for this game, except that Chargers would probably lose given the spread and how everything had moved towards the Niners. Chargers were super banked up. I was pretty impressed with two people, Justin Herbert. I thought he had a pretty good game. And Brandon Sealy, I thought he called a great defense. The Niners, for the most part, looked a little bit out of sorts at times and i thought staley kind of flummoxed kyle shanahan but at the end of the day the, i think the chargers were just super banged up and i kind of want to like talk about you know herbert and, and stafford like you know these are two quarterbacks who last year got a, a, an upgraded situation from where they were in 2020 right so you know herbert got a revamped offensive line stafford got uh, a, a brand new play caller and a, a better offensive line both had career years um in in their new situations and now we look at both quarterbacks and they're playing in two of the most injured teams in the nfl two teams or two offenses where the offensive line isn't really suited to pass protect for very long and the receive like they either have one receiver who's really good or just a bad receiving core in general they have two of the worst run games in the nfl like how do we objectively uh measure or how do we objectively like evaluate these quarterbacks given the situations that they're in this is a great question for herbert i think you could evaluate it by a couple things one he still has the lowest pressure to sack rate in the league which is showing he's he can overcome his bad offensive line better than basically anyone else in the nfl stafford has one of the highest pressure to sack rates in the league so even though you know that pressure is coming often and it's coming fast he's still taking a lot of sacks this year and then Herbert still has the insane, uh, you know, out of this world alien arm 
to make some of the throws that he had. You know, he had multiple big time throws in this game. Stafford's arm might be cooked, right? Like it, we, mm, we heard that yeah. his throw velocity has gone down about 10 to 15% last year, this year, uh, you know, something that, that the Rams track. And so that's, that's why I can, you know, kind of like still feel confident going forward about Herbert while like Stafford is, is like having the season where so many things have multiplied together for him not to be performing well. Like he's, he's pretty clearly playing injured. So, you know, if he were to get healthy, I think, you know, he might be fine in a different situation or if they were able to upgrade their offensive line. But, like, Herbert is still the quarterback that we know and we've been such fans of for a while. It's just, like, everything around him has been so bad this year. But the underlying things that he does, especially when he's allowed to pass on early downs when they actually let him do that, have, have yeah. been pretty good. Yeah, I just, I mean, look, I... I'm so new. I just don't know how to evaluate Joel Lombardi as an offensive player caller. Like, yeah, I mean, I would say 90% of Twitter is is on the fire Lombardi train. I'm not going that far. I think it's tough to evaluate Herbert and Lombardi on it because you have to evaluate them on a curve, right? Like Lombardi went into this offseason thinking we'd have a stellar offensive line, right, with an all pro left tackle, two pretty solid wide receivers. And he has none of that. Like he doesn't have guys at the most important positions outside of quarterback. So it's tough to evaluate him. But I mean, in the second half, I, I was a little bit disappointed with his play calling. So on first and 10, these were the outcomes of the Chargers first and 10 plays. Eckler two yard run, Eckler 12 yard run, Michelle two yard run, Eckler two yard run, Spiller negative one yard run, DeAndre Carter negative two yard jet sweep. So you have one successful play on first down. You're already going up against the you know one of the best defenses in the NFL. I know, like I understand, like um, you want to uh, you want to protect your offensive line by not passing it as much. But I feel like in this situation, you have to like lean on Herbert, who would, who was having a good game before the the second half, right? Like I don't. I just didn't understand the need to kind of like run the ball to establish play action, which has already been de debunked. Like I, I was a little bit disappointed by the second half play calling. And honestly, like that's kind of been a trend that's that's carried with Lombardi for most of the year and something that Chargers probably need to fix if they want to have any shot, shot of making the playoffs. The the early down blame, I think I do put on Lombardi for all the things that you laid down. But the late down blame, I think I'm really starting to put it on Herbert, like I, I get he's been being put in these bad situations yeah. where if you're a quarterback, you don't want to be put at third and six plus all the time because it really wears on you to to convert. The first quarter when the Chargers offense was rolling, he was throwing into tight windows on third and long. He was taking, you know, shots down the field, 20, 30 air yards. You know, he missed on a throw that could have been a touchdown, but it was a very difficult throw to make. But the other ones he converted all throughout the the first quarter, I think he was four or five on third down conversions in the first quarter. And kind of through the rest of the first half. The second half was so frustrating because it, every single time he would go first read, second read, check down on third down, mm -hmm. first read, second read, check down. And you you have this arm where you made one of the best throws of the season in this game, uh, where you fit it in you know the tightest window that only two, three percent of quarterbacks in the NFL can do. So you should be making these throws on third down. If it gets intercepted, that's okay. You know, if if it gets batted down, that's okay. Like these checkdowns have such a low conversion probability because of how quickly the defense gets to the ball that there's there's not much of a point in in taking them. You know, only like yeah. let's say one in ten will get converted. 
I think it's okay for him to be more aggressive on third down. Like at, at least make sure you're passing uh, past the sticks Passes. because yeah. yeah, exactly. Because like that will just give you a better chance of succeeding. I know it adds more risk, but he needs to add more risk into his game right now to convert some of these. Yeah, I, I agree. That's that's probably the one of the few blames I put on Herbert. And look, I, I mean, I, I'm as harsh on any player as any, but like I, I've been critical of Herbert. And that's probably the one thing I think he needs to improve on, just taking a little bit more risk. But I don't know. I feel like with how, you know, with with the skill position players that Herbert has, which is basically no one, he's kind of being forced into this game manager role where he's kind of just being asked not to lose the game, let the defense kind of win the game. And the defense was winning the Chargers the game for the most part after the first quarter, after the scripted plays. And, you know, the Chargers offense just couldn't get anything going, which is kind of predictable after a certain time. But, um, you know, transitioning over the, the 49ers offense, I thought looked a little bit funky. Uh, they didn't run the ball as well as I thought they would, especially with Christian McCaffrey. They, you know, another week where uh, McCaffrey's backup outperformed him, which is pretty funny. <laughs> I'm not sure if you had the rushing yards over expected metric for uh, for Mitchell versus CMC. Uh, yeah, so the the success rate in this game uh, that that I looked at was, um, you know, uh, Elijah Mitchell sixty seven percent rushing success rate, Christian McCaffrey forty percent success rate. I do mm-hmm. think it's funny that Jeff Wilson had a great day in Miami too when, when he was having a good <laughs> season uh, with with the forty nine as well. And like I think like McCaffrey, you know, with his his four receptions that went for forty yards, like you could really see the impact that he'll have on this offense as a receiver, but like. Kyle Shannon is a little too into like him being a rusher right now when he's just going to be as good of a rusher as any other running back on the team, you know, especially like Elijah Mitchell, like Mitchell out touched him as a rusher in this game. And like, I think McCaffrey is better suited to you know, a slot receiver uh, being, being the, the, the check down for Jimmy G when his first read is not open and providing like a, a, you know, better option where they could actually turn out yards when, when that happens. But it, it, it did almost, you know, cost the the um, 49ers the game, the fact that so many of McCaffrey's rushes uh, weren't successful rushes. Yeah, I agree. And again, like the Chargers defense, interior defensive line is, is one of the softest. It's one of the thinnest in terms of like its depth in the NFL. They lost two guys to season and en- season ending injuries during the game. So it was a little bit surprising uh, for the Niners to not really take advantage of that. And finally, like, Kyle, like you, it's fourth and goal from the two yard line with, you know, you're up three, your defense is balling out. Just go for it. you like, all you could have probably just ran it up the middle again. The charges would have folded. Like, I, I don't understand how he, he makes all these trades for these elite skill possession players has one of the best left tackles in NFL history. And he's still kicking it back to the chargers. Like I, I don't, I don't, I just don't understand. Like I thought that, and you know, analytically, Kicking to go up six at the end of games is, is one of the worst, you know, decisions you can make as a play caller or as a as a head coach, right? So I like overall not the greatest game for the from the 49ers offense. And again, I think Shanahan needs some things to clean up in the game management side. Yeah, and it is the trade-off that we've mentioned multiple times on here where you get the best play call in the NFL, but you sacrifice all the game management. It's yeah. pretty wild that, you know, he kicked the two field goals from fourth and two, fourth and one, right, you know, in goal-to-go situations, uh, punted on fourth and one halfway through the game. You you should trust yourself as an offensive play caller. It's funny that you have Brandon Staley across the sidelines from you 
as a defensive mind who's one of the most aggressive coaches on fourth down in the NFL, and you're an offensive mind, you should be, you know, optimistic about offense over defense and optimistic about the weapons that you have at your disposal yeah. because you've assembled all these guys. Like, this is the, this is your dream offense. This is positionless football as close as we can get to it, and you still just don't feel confident with how you will convert these. And, like, third down Jimmy Garoppolo is amazing, right? Like, this is, like, an mm-hmm. actual thing that, like, has been going on for years now. Like, it's not a small sample size. 0.88 EPA per pass on late downs in this game. He's been second in EPA per play on third downs in 2019 behind Patrick Mahomes. So, like, I don't know how Jimmy Garoppolo is able to always find a guy, like, two two yards short of the six on third down, but place the ball so that he could get the yards after the catch to convert the first down. But he, he's just able to do it. So that should even give him more of a reason for Kyle Shanahan to go for it on these late downs because his his quarterback is like really really good at converting them. Yeah, it's it's so weird that the third down the third and Jimmy will will never cease to amaze me. And you know I'm sh- I I don't know how long it's gonna go on. Or I guess the the only way we'll we'll be able to test that hypothesis is when he moves uh, or leaves to go to a different team. Um, but yeah, so that was a if, if the 49ers like keep doing this like like they look like a good team right now. You know maybe yeah. second or third best of the NFC. If they make another NFC championship game this year and, you know, that's like a coin flip game with the Eagles, what do you do with Jimmy G? Like if he's taking you to three NFC championship games, maybe two Super Bowls, what do you, what's like your thought process there with how you handle that situation? Um, well, I think like it depends. I, I think if they win the Super Bowl, it's probably hard to move on from him. I think you mm-hmm. probably have to bring him back on like a one year or something. But look, at this point, you're so like it, it literally probably would be one of the not worst draft picks in NFL history, but like one of the most like one of the biggest sunk costs in NFL history to trade up for Lance and to not even have him start like up until year three. Like I think I think you have to kind of just like let Lance get back in the rotation and and start next year, even if Jimmy wins a Super Bowl, because I think financially also like he Jimmy's gonna cost you a, a bit of money, and like you're gonna have to make upgrades or like at least like bring some players back if you're the Niners, and I don't think you can really do that if you bring Jimmy back, and so you have to kind of roll with Lance as the starter. Yeah, that that's a good point. You know, I think I I think I would probably keep Jimmy G at, at this point if if I was the 49ers, depending on how the rest of the season played out, because he showed that he could just keep doing this over and over. Like I know that, you know, a lot of film guys think that he's not a good quarterback and like, I don't think he's a great quarterback, but he's so well suited for what Kyle Shanahan wants to run and this yak based offense because of his accuracy that I just mm-hmm. think that, you know, if, if he wants to stay on the, the deal that he's on, uh, you know, like you mentioned, the money becomes a big thing, but if he just wants to stay on the deal that he's on and kind of just keep riding this out, I think the 49ers formula that they found here where you go, you get, you know, a, a decent offensive line. You you can kind of run the ball uh, at an okay level, but you could you convert up their downs. You have, you know, explosive plays from your weapons, and then you have a, 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 the best defensive line of the league every year on the other end to kind of just keep, you know, being something that they, they keep running back. But it'll be really interesting to see what they decide to do depending on how far they go. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, that was our game reviews from week, from week ten. Yeah, from week ten. I I don't know how I forgot the week. Uh, but yeah, now we'll uh, move on to our who was him segment of the week in our letdowns.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You are not him. You are not him. Told a bitch I'm him. Quit playing. Turn around with a boss. What bitch get in? Yeah. Stay on the road like the Michelin man. Put an M on your head like a Michelin. Now that we finished our week ten review, we will get into our Who Was Hib awards and some of our letdowns. So, Arjun, why don't you kick us off here with a player that you thought played really well this past week? Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna start off with a surprising one too. Is Hagavaloa? I know it's <laughs> kind of been lower on him than most of the the public. I'm. I'm slowly updating my priors. I, I still, again, want to see him perform against a good defense. Doing it against the Lions, the Bears, and the Browns, or performing well against the 30th, like those teams who rank 29th, 30th, and 32nd in EPA per play isn't really going to sway me like that much. But even I got to say, like, Tua made some pretty good throws this game. Um, you know, he was pretty lights out on on got to have it situations. And it, it wasn't like he was taking advantage of just, like, super open uh, guys and um Jalen Waddle and Tyree Kill, like he he was like making throws to like Alec Engle, like he got Trent Sherfield involved, Marie Moshe, like he was spreading the ball around. And I thought this was one of his better all-around games, not only from a production-based standpoint, but also from like a film-based standpoint. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I I do really like giving this one out because like two is legit like well, like, you know, when you look at the difference between him and Teddy Bridgewater in this offense. Like, Teddy Bridgewater is not a bad quarterback, right? Like, he was starting yeah. for the Broncos last year, was the Broncos' best quarterback in the past two years. So, uh, when when you kind of look at the difference, you can see the effect that two is having. He's accurate enough where, you know, the the margin of error that his teammates give him will, will work. And, like, it's really exciting to watch the Dolphins' offense right now. And I want to give a who was him to Alec Ingold, who you mentioned. Um, second highest graded fullback in football behind Patrick Ricard right now. Um, but, like, the versatility is, like, really what impresses me with Ingold. You know, on Sunday, he had 16 snaps in the backfield, 12 snaps in line, 12 snaps in the slot, and two out wide. So he can, he can do everything for, for the Dolphins offense. The play that, you know, I think that is kind of like their bread and butter has been their, their play action uh, out of 21 personnel or 12 personnel. And Ingold is so crucial to that ceiling, you know, kind of like the block on the side that Tua is not, not uh, rolling away from to make sure that Tua doesn't get blindsided or, or there's no pressure on him. You know, he, he caught a touchdown pass in this game. Like overall, I think he's, he's very important to the Dolphins offense and needs to be talked about more. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think Ingold is kind of taking on a bigger role than, you know, he has, especially with, um, with, uh, the Dolphins. Um, I'm going to go back to my bread and butter, someone who's gotten a lot of awards for me, Justin Jefferson. We talked about him earlier on the show, like had probably the catch of the year, possibly the decade, but 10 catches, 193 yards against, you know, one of the better pass defenses in the NFL. Um, I mean, the guy is just kind of unstoppable, probably the most valuable non-quarterback right now. I would say best receiver in the game, even more than Tyree Kill, even with Tyreek having the game he's having. Um, we can get into that conversation another time, but that kind of just is me saying, I think if you take Jeff- Jefferson away from the offense, the Vikings will have a bigger drop-off than if you take uh, Tyreek away from the offense. So really impressed by Jefferson, and you know, I think I'm keeping my Jefferson offensive player of the year tickets. 
For sure, yeah. I know this is, you know, even more uh, well-deserved recognition. Him and Hill have been real pleasures this year to watch from the receiver position. They can, you know, you can really see what they can do to help out quarterbacks that, that needed this extra boost. And, you know, they've, they've really given it to them. And those quarterbacks are playing well because they're more confident because they're throwing to two of the best receivers in the game. So it's, it's, it was really cool to watch Jefferson on Sunday. I need to give an award to Patrick Mahomes. Just a routine 330 passing yards, four touchdowns, 9.2 yards per set. You know, this is this is just normal for Patrick Mahomes, right? Like, this is what we expect for him uh, from, from the Jaguars. I gave out, you know, Patrick Mahomes over two and a half passing touchdowns on PFF.com uh, before this game. That bet hit in the first half, you know, didn't even have to sweat that one out. And, like, yeah. what, what Hill did in this game, like, I get it was against the Jaguars defense. But you don't have Tyree Kill anymore. You lose Juju Smith-Schuster. You know, I hope he's okay during the game. And he just makes it work, no matter what circumstances are around him. Tony's been on the team two weeks. You know, has the most separation on a touchdown in next-gen stats history uh, because of, like, all, like, the effects of Mahomes and where he was originally looking on that play and then turning back around to throw it to Tony. And just, like, everything he does on a week-to-week basis, you know, we shouldn't take it for granted. Uh, you know, most fun quarterback that... You know, I might have in my lifetime, and I'm I'm gonna make sure that I uh I I you know don't don't uh want to like give up on uh on, you know not watching him when I can. Yeah, totally agree. You he looked great, and he's again I I think he's the MVP right now, and mm-hmm. he definitely deserves yeah. uh, an award this week. Um, I'm gonna wrap it up with Mike Vrabel. The the you know Titans just find ways to win. It, it's so weird how they do it but going into this game missing like a couple key defenders coming off coming going against a russell wilson broncos team that was coming off a bye week i know jerry judy got hurt like during the game but i mean titan just shut down russell wilson like there was literally nothing outside of the 66 yard touchdown like one fluky play is what beat the titans and that that was kind of all she wrote for the broncos so um i thought rabel had a had a great game calling plays, you know, setting the setting the Titans up for success. And, you know, I got to give it to him that it's it's tough to like bet against him because he's such a good coach and he's he's always having his team well prepared for for offensive teams. Vrabel's Vrabel's amazing because I think he's Mike Tomlin of the South, right, where he just raises the floor of his team to such a level where you can have average to below average quarterback play or like you mentioned, a bunch of defensive starters missing or anything. And they are just going to beat teams that they're they're supposed to beat and not lose these games. You know, I, I don't know if the ceiling is necessarily there for Vrabel, but like what he's done again this season where everyone, including us, picked the Colts again to win the AFC South and the, mm-hmm. the Titans basically have it locked up at this point of the season is, is truly amazing. And it's really cool to watch. Yeah. Uh, I'm, my last Who Is Him award will go to Mike Kafka, the Giants offensive coordinator. Uh, you know, this could also be coupled with Brian Dable. As well, Daniel Jones had the second highest EPA per play this week, uh, despite having a 64 PFF grade. So you know you can really see that they're they're uh, making him play uh, above his you know kind of level of of output, which is which is really really cool. And like how how are they doing this? They're, they're doing it by only involving him on 25 plays in this game. So keep his usage low. Put him in advantageous situations. You know, he had the highest expected completion rate of any quarterback this week with 73%. So throw when, you know, he has a good opportunity to complete the pass. And, you know, this quote from Kafka was awesome where he says, Coach Andy Reid says, you know, all the time, 
NFL is three to five yards behind college and college is three to five yards behind high school. So this probably means Kafka's looking at these high school offenses where it's a lot of these things where they're using their quarterback as a rusher and they have, you know, usually pretty good running back. Like, like uh, as you get, you know, lower, lower levels of football, running backs matter a lot more. So they matter a lot in high school and you can see how they're using Saquon Barkley and Daniel mm-hmm. Jones and not much receiving talent, much like a high school football team would have. And a lot of the play concepts that they're getting, I bet they're getting from high schools all across the country. So it's a lot of, it's a grind from the Shines coaching staff to put out this offense, which has been really impressive this year to watch as, as they kind of just keep rolling here. Yeah. Yeah. I've been pretty impressed by Mike Kafka and he's, he's probably going to get like, gonna get a head coaching job soon uh probably not this year but in you know in the next year or so if he if he keeps this level of play calling up um let's just transition into our letdowns i'm gonna let you kick it off with your biggest letdown from this weekend yeah so i i I felt a little bad doing this i wrote it up before the injury but i still want to talk about cooper cup uh you know I, i really hope he has a good recovery i think the timeline is four to six weeks uh but you know my thing about Cooper Cup was, and Timo Riske mentioned this when he came on our show over the summer, Cooper Cup was the 30th highest uh, rated receiver coming into the 2021 season by PFF. If you look at the Athletic or the ESPN top 10 executive polls that they do ranking receivers, he was not in the top 10 in either of those. Uh, Cooper Cup is a really, really good receiver, but I think Matthew Stafford was so perfect for his skill set last year that he elevated Cooper Cup into everyone thinking that Cup was a top three receiver when Stafford was so good for uh, Cup's success, you know, being really aggressive, kind of like the types of throws that Cup was good at, uh, you know, the, the connection that they had that they worked so hard for over the summer. Uh, you know, Wolford comes into this game and was not good at all for the Rams, but Cup had negative one receiving yards in this game. You could see Hopkins on the other side of the game have 90 receiving yards with his backup quarterback. And like when you watch Cup's targets back, you know, it, it was a lot of screens that he just didn't have any burst for that he he turned into, you know, uh, zero or negative one yard gains. And then he had a huge drop over the middle of the field in the second quarter that could have been a 25 yard gain for the Rams. So, you know, I, I think that people probably overreacted to putting Cup in the top three receivers uh, last season. You know, he's, He's still a very good receiver, probably, you know, just inside the top 10. But it was just something that I wanted to mention uh, when, when we had the opportunity here. <laughs> yeah, I, was, I wasn't I was expecting that uh, kind of response to the Cooper Cup thing. But I, I think you're completely right. And, um, you know, it's it, it's going to be really interesting to see what the Rams do going forward because now McVay has an injured quarterback and, you know, with basically a, a bad receiving core, that might be one of the worst in the NFL next to the Chargers. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm going to give my letdown to Russell Wilson. I, I talked about just before, like, how I was super impressed by the Titans, like, defensive scheme. I just, like, don't understand what the Broncos are doing. They had a whole week, a bye week, to figure out a game plan against this Titans defense, which has been pretty good this year, who they got to see on prime time. The Titans defense basically played one and a half games against the Chiefs with how much Mahomes was throwing and how much they had to you know stay on the field. And the Broncos offense just still didn't get anything done outside of a 66-yard touchdown. It's like the whole let Russ Cook move, like 
it's just like he doesn't cook. I don't know what they're cooking up <laughs> over the 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 bye week, but apparently it was just they were just prepping and prepping, but nothing's come. They haven't like turned on the stove yet. So <laughs> I'm pretty disappointed with Russell in general. And like, I mean, I wasn't really expecting too much from him coming into this year, but this has been like way, way worse than I thought. And, you know, at this point, you really got to you're stuck with him for five years. It's tough to kind of have an out on his contract, but you got to really figure out if Hackett's the right guy for him. And if so, like, how do you kind of build this offense around it? Because right now the the return on investment has not been pretty at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you, you know, with quarterback aging curves, you usually expect more of like a gradual decline, like the one that we saw from Drew Brees, uh, yeah. where he kind of got worse each year. This has just been a, a you know, complete like falling off the cliff decline by by Russell Wilson, who, you know, we didn't think played super well last year, but at least he was like, a, a, you know, a, a, a pretty good level starting quarterback. But for him to just completely go out this year and be one of the worst starting quarterbacks in the NFL, ring 26th in EPA per play, behind a lot of backup quarterbacks as well. Like, it, it's just been wild to see him fall off. And I, yeah, I'm glad you, you mentioned him here as well, too, in the letdowns. Yeah, so... Um, that's gonna that's gonna wrap it up for today's episode. Anything else you wanted to add, Tage, or are we good? Yeah, I think you know. I think this will be the the Friday where we do the live Twitter space. Uh, so so be on the lookout for that. Uh, you know, we'll we'll probably start it. You know, sometime Friday afternoon, Friday evening. Just basically have like an episode where we're previewing some of the games, and you know, whoever joins, we'd love to have you come on and talk with us. You know, always love love talking to to anyone about football. So we'll, we'll, we'll start that up and put out a bunch of tweets about it. So be sure to be following, you know, the take the points account uh, on, on Twitter, if you don't already, as well as our personal accounts as well for, for that Twitter space. Yep. And don't forget to continue to fade our bets that we give out <laughs> on our, on our late, late week shows. Um, officially, you know, officially own four in our on our best this week we want to be transparent <laughs> um not not the best of weeks but you know we'll, we'll bounce back as always and hopefully we can get things turned around on friday but yeah that's going to be it for us today a little bit of a longer episode today but um thank you all for listening and until next time on take the points <laughs>